Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthro to UX. I'm here today with Alexandra Mack, who is the current interim head of research at Ad Hoc LLC, uh, previously at Pitney Bowes, and basically a great career working as an anthropologist in business and particularly technology, uh, probably in a few different, pers- you know, looking at it from a few different perspectives, especially from, you know, the past work to to today at Ad Hoc and UX. So we're going to talk a bit, a little bit about that. But uh, Alexander, would you mind by starting just telling everybody, you know, how you got interested in anthropology and a little bit about your background? Um, sure. and. Um... I just want to say thank you for having me here, Matt. So, um, oh, wow, going way back to anthropology, it really came from um, when I was in college and fortunately having the space to explore different subjects, things I didn't know I was interested in. I went to college thinking I was going to study biology. And then when it came time to pick a major, I had happened to take one anthropology class and I talked to an upperclassman who had been in that class. Actually, I should back off before I talked to him. I had looked at biology and somebody said, so are you a pre-med? To which I was like, wait, uh, nothing wrong with pre-meds. We need really good doctors, um, better doctors than I would be. That um, upperclassman who was in anthropology said, hey, look at the course book and look at what looks interesting to you. And wow, I'd taken that anthropology class and I saw all these really interesting topics. And then they said, oh, and in anthropology, you get to take reading and related subjects and count them towards your major, which was fantastic for me who had all these varied interests and realizing that anthropology itself was, you know, it's a study of people. Well, wow, you know, that's, well, okay, a physicist might disagree with me, but that's everything. So that was really what led me into anthropology as an undergraduate and, um, and then to continue it within that in my graduate studies as well. And if, uh, if I'm correct, you, your PhD was in archaeology, right? It was. So that also came from uh, probably a more limited knowledge set that I had at the time when I was young, of feeling like, well, if I go into a PhD in anthropology, like social anthropology, which is really what I focused on as an undergraduate, that, um, well, that's really cool, but do I have to go live alone in the jungle for two years? And uh, a lot of the work that's fantastic work that's being done now in more applied spaces in graduate programs was nascent or really even not available then. And I had worked in museums um, really high school and during my graduate work. And so that had exposed me a bit more to the archaeology side of things. And I thought, wow, you know, this is, this is a more, um, at least in the exposure I had at the time, a more collaborative um, aspect of anthropology. So I went after archaeology for my PhD 
And I was particularly interested at the time in, I'm still interested in how people use space and particularly space in urban environments in cities. And that led me working on different projects that worked in more um, urban or at least um, like bigger sites, bigger archaeological sites, and ended up working at a site called Bijanagra, it, which is in southern India. And that site had, was, had been an imperial capital from the 14th to 16th century. So my dissertation was on pilgrimage. Uh, in 14th to 16th century India, which, as you can maybe get the sense of, you can see my sort of social anthropology roots coming out there with um, pilgrimage. And uh, I realized then that leads to the, okay, what does that have to do with UX or anything else? Yeah, exactly. So maybe tell us a little bit about that, because... You know, obviously, that it was not being taught then, as you kind of alluded to, to to practice, especially to practice in your, you know, in in your sort of uh, within business, you know, within your sort of local environment, and so, um, and, you know, in your home culture in many cases. And so, you know, what was how did that all unfold for you? Yeah, it was really by by chance, in a sense, I was already realizing that much as I really did love what I was doing in archaeology and the, um, the work in India that I was writing my dissertation on, and being a researcher, I had a couple of realizations. One was the academic job market was really hard. And while I wouldn't have minded being a professor, I wasn't sure that I wanted that career path enough to make the sacrifices that I was seeing other people make for it. And I was also realizing that as much as I loved what I was doing, as, as I hinted at when I said as an undergraduate, anthropology was exciting because there were so many different things I could learn under that umbrella, is that did I want to, you know, become that really deep expert in the one thing, or did I want something more spread out? And at the same time, I was having those, my own internal realizations at a AAA meeting in Chicago there was an open house at what was then ELAB. And by going there, I learned, you know, not only met them, but met other people working in that area. And all of a sudden, this whole world of there were anthropologists who worked in design firms. And um, that, that realization opened the door for me to, to do more research into what was available there. And as I was finishing my dissertation, I didn't apply for any academic jobs. I just applied for jobs in design firms. And um, which I think sort of speaks to, you know, notice I said, you know, I was working in design, not um, necessarily what's, you know, now being framed as, as UX. UX then uh, was, I think, much narrower than what people would put under the UX umbrella today. Yeah, so talk us through that. Um, you know, so you said it's narrower. You would hear more terms like design research, which is not gone. You know, Microsoft still uses it for many of their roles, and it's you know it's still out there in plenty of places. But what did what did the what did it look like then? And then we'll get to maybe you know a little bit of contrast with what it looks like today for you. Sure, and I would even say design research wasn't even a common term then. Um, <laughs> which may be dating myself, but um, it, it did look more like, at least in the areas where I was looking, 
And that may also speak to where my, my interest was. And I want to give full props to like the people who you know, were already doing this before me in places like Xerox Park and ELAP. But it was a using ethnographic methods to understand the, um, what people were doing, whether that was in their work or in their lived, lived experience. And I call that like front end research. I think, you know, sometimes it's these days we call it discovery or foundational research, but it was really the idea of we need to understand um, people and what they're doing through observational techniques as much as possible to then um, ideate, create, design, build the right products, services, websites that they're going to be using. Yeah. Okay. And so that kind of goes to where, where I was, what I was going to ask. And so, you know, it seems, well, it it seems as if the research back then was much more anthropological than a lot of UX is today. You know, just when I'm as an outsider kind of looking in, reading some of like, you know, the stories, the books, it, it seems like it got, you know, you, it was a little bit more longitudinal. It seems a little bit more in depth than a lot of research is today. I mean, of course, in some bigger organizations where they're doing very strategic oriented research, maybe meta looking at, you know, the metaverse, something of that nature. Um, I appreciate it's probably similar, but, you know, a lot of UX today seems very tactical uh, for a lot of people. Um, and so do you think that's a fair kind of distinction? I think so. I think that there was more investment in the time it took to be more observational and longer term. And of course, that's, you know, that is the good and the bad and the ups and downs of the business world about where they see the value of investing um, more time and money. But I will say, and, you know, we'll, we can talk about my experience at at Pitney Bowes, uh, uh, as in, that's a very particular company, but I'll, I'll jump into that story. I was hired there as their R&D group, you know, as with many companies had a traditional technology-based R&D. The um, vice president who had come in had come from Verizon, where he had worked with anthropologists and had been exposed to what you could get if you did sort of more front end work. And he said, you know, we need to keep this technology based R&D, but I want to take some portion of it and reorg it so that we do front end work and work on strategic questions and research them. And um, what got built in were a couple of little groups within there. One was called Concept Studio, where we took strategic questions and did the research and built out ideas into prototypes and got feedback and ended up with a value proposition. Another was called Systems Lab, where there was more uh, more work to remove the risks so that you'd have a bit more of the, even if it was kind of Wizard of Oz, kind of building out something that sort of worked to see if the technology would work and more building out of the business model, which still requires research in there. So a more um, human-centered view of how, you know, what technology should we be developing and how do you then move those things into the market? Now, history of Pitney Bowes is also history of a company that is, you know, had been focused on mailing. So there were other things in the world that shrunk that. 
But that investment in corporate R&D went from a 70-person group that I joined to about 10 people by the time that I left. And I think, yes, that has to do with the market forces on that company in particular. But I think over that time, while we saw many, many more anthropologists and researchers getting employed in corporations, a bit of a shrinking of that um, more really, um, as you put it, the like front end longitudinal, a bit less of that, except in some very specific pockets where some great work is still being done. Yeah. And so, I mean, that kind of leaves us at the doorstep of, you know, more, the more modern UX movement. And so you sort of stepped into a UX role, you know, that was framed as UX a few years ago. And, you know, in that time, um, it's really exploded quite a bit. Um, it's obviously changing. It's maturing in many places. It's also maybe in smaller places getting picked up and you know, or, or being asked for by business stakeholders without always asking, knowing what they're asking for because it's become popular. And so would you mind just telling us a little bit about what your experience has been as you've really seen the, the discipline explode? Yeah, and I will also frame that in when I stepped into this role, I am in this role in the frame of a um, digital services company that primarily works with government agencies. So there's also a piece of how I and we as a company see the role of UX also in parallel with the growing maturity of our government agencies to whom this is much newer concept. I mean, you know, for better or for worse, you know, in in government, there are a lot of legacy systems. There's a lot of legacy approaches to IT. So I think within um, my company, within many similar companies, has a, whatever you want to call it, a modern approach to UX, that, that we have a core focus if we're building digital services to being human-centered and seeing that say, the research piece does extend from that foundational, you need to understand the space before you know what it is you're building and how you're building it, um, all the way through to, yes, the evaluative on the other end that you need to be, yes, you do need the usability testing and you do need to look at metrics to understand and to iterate. So I think that... Um, and maybe that's a sort of good frame of like, well, what's encompassed by UX is that there is that end to end in the product life cycle. And there is a piece of like understanding that space at the beginning. It's not as frequently that super extended piece that we were talking about earlier. There's a maturity level in um, client agencies, which can be within the government or even in um private companies that may be new to this where, um, yeah, they are even learning, okay, yeah, there's the, the first step in is often usability, like, hey, you know, you're, which is great, or in a more traditional, like, project-focused um, cycle of, okay, these, we need user stories for the agile development, and so research can give us user stories. So I see it more as a um, a progression of starting of, you know, within organizations of understanding 
the different um, parts of the life cycle and where like research and in particular for me, an anthropological approach comes in. So there's the like immediately visible things, right? Like it's got to be usable. If people can't use it, you're going to fail. Um, okay, we've, we're doing agile. Oh, we use user stories to then starting to say, actually, but having this broader understanding is about how it is designed, how you roadmap the product out over time. It's not just about what's in the next sprint. It's about where is this product going over time. And I think that becomes a um, gradual, I mean, at least at an organizational level, a gradual process. And I think what anthropology, you know, in particular brings, and I should say my, my team at Ad Hoc, we've got anthropologists, but we've got folks from museums, from library science, from English, from design, and there is real power in having multiple backgrounds. But um, I think the anthropological background definitely brings a holistic way of thinking of really wanting to like connect the different parts of the puzzle and the pieces because ultimately I was bringing up usability and user stories. Okay, that's the user end of things. But uh, don't forget, there's also the stakeholder end of things. And in fact, the other systems ends of things, there's really complex networks that, um, that really feed into it. And I think anthropologists by nature or by training want to dig into those complexities and unpack them and then understand how to make that in turn actionable in terms of the product. Yeah, no, certainly agree. They were a good fit and also agree with you that other people can also be, you know, a good fit for these roles. And, uh, you know, another point there is that uh, we're, this podcast talks about UX, but, you know, you mentioned user stories and you're talking about agile development. I think it's also always worth pointing out that anthropologists can consider other roles within tech organizations where they might be a good fit, like product management. You know, we we certainly can step into a number within that space. Um and one of more of those roles being, and that's what I want to ask about now, is service design. So in the case of digital services, you know, for the government, that certainly seems like a good place to to be thinking about service design as a whole, of which, you know, UX and service design, there are sort of, you know, there's an overlapping mindset, there's some overlapping methods and, and you know, ways of approaching the process. And they're a little bit different, but they're obviously a little similar at the same time. So does Ad Hoc talk to government about you know, service design at all, or do you sort of just bundle everything as UX and do a little bit of that work? As No, we do. In fact, we, I am currently helping out on a, on a project where we are to deliver a service blueprint at the end of September. So yes, and in fact, right now, and this is, um, as I said, you know, our clients are US-based, but there is... Um, Biden released an executive order on CX earlier this year. So there are some like White House mandates around customer experience, which has opened the door for being able to talk more. Um, I shouldn't say open the door for being able to talk more. Open the door for being able to sell more service design. Uh, what's interesting working in the government space, and I am by no means an expert on government contracting, but a lot of what we are doing is responding to um, the government puts out um, bids, requests for proposals for, you know, we need this thing done. And so there's a need to respond to it. And certainly um, 
depending on what's asked for, we both within the response might try and work in, you know, how say a service design approach could tackle the problem you're doing, or once we're inside the agency, also working to um, to influence how they approach things. So it's a very different model of sales, I guess, as well, because we have to be respond to requests that ask for very specific things. Yeah, it's interesting one way in that it's maybe limiting, but it's also you know, it's uh, it tells you almost also what you, where you need to go in some sense, which is you know, it's kind of pros and cons, I guess. Um, so tell me a little bit about you know leading in an organization. So you know, very accomplished researcher, you have a lot of experience at Pitney, and and you you come it from it from that more uh, you know from that from that perspective of where you got to engage in the the more robust front end work and. You know, a lot of people in UX today are coming into it sometimes as their first job, or I'll just say they're like early to mid-career in a lot of places. And so maybe it's their first research job in business. So what has it, you know, what has it been like in this environment? And what are you doing to, you know, sort of mature the practice of, you know, those more junior researchers? Yeah, and this is a an interesting thing too in that we currently don't have as many junior researchers as we would like. We would like to have more junior researchers um so that we can we can do more growing and training them. But I think there's a, a few aspects to that. A a big thing that is actually for the more junior folks, especially in our environment, but I think in others as well, there's there's a couple of things. One is Okay, learning new methods and approaches, right? Um, somebody who's new to the field may have done um, done a bit of usability testing or um, done some short courses or maybe done uh, class projects. And so one thing is exposing them to more approaches for how to do research and an openness flexibility is one of the big things because at some level, I don't want to say we're always inventing new methods uh, because there's like standard sets of things, but being able to say, well, how do I work within the constraints I have? What, what data is available to me? What is available? What can I do? So like there's tools. So like making sure that people have more tools in their toolkit, like, can you, do you know how to do usability testing? Well, do we maybe need to do, some IA work around tree testing or card sorting. Uh, are you familiar with conducting a more, in, you know, a one-on-one -on -one interview? Are you, but also like, hmm, do you know how to bring in, if we can get some site metrics, how do you bring that in? If it's mobile, um, what, what are other things? Is there a call center that you can get verbatims from the call center from? So I think one one part of that growing is that understanding of how do you gather and work with different types of data and be flexible to the constraints that you may have in the environment. And another is as we mature uh, researchers, again, this being a consulting environment, it's the learning to work with, um, with your stakeholders, with your clients, with people above you. And I think that's, to me, and this is, I think, also why you said like researchers and anthropologists can work very well in product management positions. It's kind of remembering those research skills as you're working with other people. Like, you know, there's the meta research project of 
not just understanding your user needs. Well, what, what are your company's needs? What are your clients' needs? How do you step back and listen to all of those pieces and balance them and bring them together? And that's a, um, I think, very important skill for um, anyone as, I wouldn't expect a junior person to come into that, but I'd want to see a receptivity to that learning. I see some more generically, um, junior people or people who haven't been along who get very, and I don't, very focused on the user, like we have to do this because it is the right thing for the user. Yes, and. Um, be that advocate for the user, but also understand the broader context in which this is happening and what are the trade-offs and what are the, um, the other pieces in place. And sometimes we do have to like, not do the thing that is absolutely best for the user for a variety of reasons. So I think that that having a wider view is a very important thing that I um, try to expose more junior people to, to being able to, it's that, you know, it's classic anthropology, right? See things from a variety of different perspectives. In the beginning of what you were saying there and talking about the methods, I think something that maybe a related, I don't know if issue is the right word, but in selecting the right method, you know, there's also a consideration there for time, right? And not just what data do you have, but how much time do you have to, to, to carry out the research? And so do you see that as something that, um, you know, more junior people need to think through a bit, you know, especially maybe those coming out of academia where there was that year to do the research, you know, I think there should be a little bit more focus on picking the right method for the constraint. I think there's the methods for the constraints and the other challenge I've seen with some people coming out of academia is the analysis side, especially don't have nearly as much time to analyze and perfect your data. And there's got to be a comfort with good enough. And that is really, really uncomfortable for people. And unfortunately, we have, you know, over the years, both here and at Pitney, there are some people who just aren't able, you know, that's just not the right fit for them. So I think it's both the time, the time constraints on the doing the work and also the time constraints on how quickly you might need to be able to deliver it. And I'll add one more, which is, and, and this is some, which is the making that actionable, which is for me, in fact, framing the research when we are in a like business environment, it's the research, I mean, learning for the sake of learning is wonderful. I came from academia, but, you know, ultimately we are in some position where somebody needs to make a, I put it as make a decision or take action. Even in the longer term longitudinal stuff, you can still frame. There are some actions or decisions that, that we're trying to do. So you want to start from there and then work backwards through, okay, well, what, what information do you need to help you make that decision or take that action? Okay, what's missing? What can we gather through the research? So even the framing of the research should be around, what do I need to learn to reach this end goal? And then the analysis and delivery of that, while you still may emerge a lot of things that aren't just part of that final thing, it shouldn't just be, here's all this cool stuff we learned. It's got to be, 
here's the stuff we learned, and here's how we recommend you use it and what you do about it. In framing those recommendations, do you have any thoughts on, um, you know, the best way to present that? And I don't necessarily mean internally, because in an organization like yours, you obviously embody uh, you know, the value of all of this. But when selling that to a client, it's also been my experience that it can sometimes be hard to, to sell the value, uh, you know, that research is contributing. And so have you learned anything just through, you know, your stakeholder engagement that you would share with everyone? One of the things I do in terms of presenting is begin back into that original, like, hey, this is why you need to know, you know, whatever that is. Here's, here's the reason why we did this research. We did this research because you have this priority. You have this problem. You have this thing, almost like a reminder to like, you know, what, what, why it is that you wanted research in the first place and to frame it within, to, within that. And so I'm, I'm very intentional about kind of reminding them why what I'm saying is helping them actually meet those goals. Um, doesn't always go over. Um, but, but again, bringing that back to how it is helping them. And that I think sometimes gets hard for people because they do have the, but this is what's right. And this is what people should do. And this is what they need to know. And the framing often can't be, this is what you should do. It, it really needs to be like, this is how this is going to get you where you think you need to be. Now, I've sometimes had times when I've had to tell clients where you think you need to be is actually not where you need to be. And that, you know, it's, it's narrative, it's storytelling, which also is hopefully something anthropologists are good at. You know, as somebody who's had a fair amount of experience in the space, what are you right now doing you know what are you trying to learn or what, what really excites you what are, you know what areas are you trying to personally explore as a researcher um you know one of the things that's just been so interesting for me being in government space for the last few years has just been like a whole new domain to learn so i think what you know i'm kind of almost like anytime there's something new to like you know get the fire hose of is interesting to me. So I think for me, a lot of it has been really wrapping my head around, um, like, and maybe this gets back to the different perspectives. I mean, I love that we do work with, you know, Medicare and Social Security and agencies where we really are ultimately building services that help, you know, that help our citizens. There's also the, like, really learning about some of the intricacies that are going on in that. And policy and how does policy get translated into technology and where do things get maybe not mistranslated but where i think one of the things that's that you know maybe engages me is thinking more about how can we do all this you mentioned medicare there and so you know that brings up an older term but is still really relevant you know of the digital divide um, and being that you're building digital government services, how do you, you know, how do you cope with the digital divide, whether that's, you know, whether they, whether the individual doesn't have access for any reason, you know, for any of the, the classic reasons that might cause that? It is a really interesting 
challenge. And one of the things, again, in looking at um, and bringing more of like the service design work to bear. And, you know, I told you uh, before we started, you know, what's interesting in uh, government services is, you know, the agencies will put out a bid for a certain kind of work. Like, you know, we want somebody to rebuild this website. Um, But more and more trying to work with the agencies and the um, president's order around CX helps to say, well, yes, there's a digital experience and a non-digital experience. And how do those come together? And given the nature of our contracts, we don't always fully have that opportunity. But the more and more of um, digging in and understanding what that is, and interestingly, there's a lot of places where um, the digital divide is an interesting thing, but there's also a lot of places where there's a lot of pain for citizens because there isn't a digital option. And they're having to um, produce everything on paper and paperwork and paper that's getting lost. So I guess I guess I didn't give you a good answer to that besides saying it is one of those wicked, sticky problems. Is there anything, um, you know, going on personally or at ad hoc that you'd want everybody to know about? I mean, at AdHoc in particular, we are a growing company. So, you know, just letting folks know that there's a lot of opportunity. And one of the things after being here that's exciting is just um, focusing in on, you know, there are frustrations and every job has its frustrations. It can be frustrating working with the government, but that, that feeling of, hey, at the end of the day, we're, we're helping people. It may feel very indirect and baby steps. So I think having folks who want to get into UX to also think about um, what's the environment in which you want to be doing this work. And, um, you know, and it's perfectly fine if it's like, I want to, you know, this is just the work I want to be doing and I'll do it anywhere. But you may also find like, gee, I want to do it for, um, to to have a, a certain kind of, end product or end result. And I'd say that's part of your thinking as well with any job that you take is to look at, I'm going to sound redundant, to look at the big picture of like, what is the work you're doing? What's the environment you're doing it in? And who are you doing it for? And um, think about that for what matters to you. Yeah, we gave a presentation for the AAA like a year ago. And, you know, we kind of framed it as in terms of Everything from size of the company to geography to, you know, how does it pair with your values and what it is, how they're, you know, what they're building, how who they're serving, et cetera, right? There's, there's a lot of considerations there. The UX is not the same in any way, shape, or form across organizations. Um, and so aside from that, uh, so, you know, thanks everybody, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make sure to link to ad hoc, um, in the show notes, but is there, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, is there any good place for them to reach out? Um, sure. I can be found on LinkedIn is a great place to find me. I think there are multiple Alexandra Macs on LinkedIn. I think I am slash Alexandra Mac with no spaces, but you can find ad hoc. And I also do have a website, which is um, www.alchemix.com. And it's, um, we should probably put that in the show notes because it's a-L-C-Y-M-Y-X. I, I am on Twitter as well, but I don't post there very often, but I'm at L-X-M-A-C-K. Well, Alexandra, thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for inviting me on. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. 
To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotouxcom There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.